Oh, uh, so I had a question earlier this week, uh, and the question was for the audio recording. When do they uh, do we can we expect that it will be up and running? And um, usually, at the average would be sometime Sunday. Um, I talked to Mary, and uh, she has a lot of audio things to. Uh, splice and put together uh, for the divine services and, um, and then she does uh, the audio for this so uh, kind of if you if you miss this live uh, but you'd like the recording or if you'd like to go back and listen to it again or or sh share it with someone uh, usually Sunday sometimes Sunday it should be up all right so it looks like it's 8 30 so let's go ahead and get started, and we'll begin with prayer. So if you would join me, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, the helper of all who call on you, have mercy on us and give us eyes of faith to see your Son, that we may follow him on the way that leads to eternal life. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, grab grab your Bible, or you can look online, whichever is easiest for you. And we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. So we're going to do Old Testament tonight. And I'll give you a second to get there. Tonight, basically... What I'm going to talk about is is very applicable for all uh, all of our children and grandchildren, uh, even people that are inside the church. If the younger you are, the the more you are affected by uh, the trends that are out in the secular culture. We we live it within the church, and we have this understanding of the gospel and the kerygma, uh, that, that kerygma, which is the gospel and the cross of Christ. But um, because we also have a foot in the world, we are influenced too by secular thoughts and trends. And, you know, we see it in our music, we see it in social media, we see it on TV. I mean, it's everywhere. And so tonight, I, I want to talk a little bit about the art of witness and how we come to share holy mystery with people. Um, on the handout at the top of page one, uh, I, I put a little quote from an agnostic by the name of Julian Barnes. He, uh, he wrote a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, and it is a reflection on mortality. And it's in some ways, very insightful, especially from an agnostic perspective. And he makes this very interesting point, he says, and I have it quoted, there seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event, apart, of course, from the normal pleasures of a weekly social event, as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything. So now this is an agnostic thinking about mortality and then thinking about what he would want the church to be if he were a Christian. And he's basically saying that, hey, if, this, if religion is just simply a social event and that's all that it is, it's just a human exercise meant to engage us and appeal to our human needs, then he doesn't really want it. If he is going to ever think about a church or a Christianity or a spirituality, he wants, he wants it to literally like stain his life, like just absolutely color it in a different way. And I think he, what he voices really does get to what a lot of people 
are thinking out in the secular culture. I think about myself and I did not understand. So when I was an atheist, I did not understand the sense of the divine, uh, nor did I understand that when you went to church, heaven and earth converged. I really thought that it was all just a human exercise. And when before I was catechized and I watched the Lutherans stream up for, to the altar for communion, I just thought they were reenacting what Jesus did. And it was just their human way of trying to connect to Jesus and what was going on in the Bible. And so there is this sense of holy mystery that the church has that is very important as we talk to people outside the church. The art of witness is not to reduce mystery, but to let it breathe. And so Julian Barnes' notion, his, his comment that he wants a religion that would stain everything brings us to the notion of transcendence something otherworldly and holy must come into the here and now, come amidst our struggles, our pain, the mundane of the world, come even into the midst of our joys. And so people, particularly the young, want their lives to be stained with the holy, with meaning. They want more than just truth claims. And lots of times with witnessing or uh, outreach or mission work, we look at it just as like information, like these people just need to know the information and then it's good. And there, there is truth, like they need to hear the kerygma, right? They, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the preaching of the cross. But it's not like it's just some kind of magical incantation that we just, if we say it, then we've done our duty. Um, People out in the world, they don't know the gospel, I would say, the secular, but they also want their lives to be changed. You know, the the elephant in the room so often, and this was true with me when I was an atheist, was I never wanted to let on to anybody that I had my pain or I had pain from my sins, or um, that I had my sorrows, or um, yearnings for things that I that I could not possess. And but but those things are real in everybody's lives, as you as you know, I'm sure. And so the question for us to consider with the art of witness is how do we how do we talk to people and build relationships with people outside the church so that they realize that there's something divine and heavenly going on and that it can and will address their greatest needs. People in the secular world, they do try to make a go of it on their own because they don't know anything different. So on the handout on page one, I asked the question, how do our secular neighbors try to achieve this significance, meaning, purpose in their lives? Because everybody tries to do that. The way the secular world does it is in, some, is in many ways different than the way the church does it. So one of the things I find fascinating, even just in my lifetime, I remember when I was a child growing up and I remember corporations like my grandfather and my father both worked for Caterpillar and Caterpillar was uh, a company that just like all companies or most companies, they were just in it to make a profit and they employed people and the people went to work and they came home and, and that was it. And Caterpillar was a great place for people to work and, and get good benefits and, and, you know, have a good day. Today it's, it's shifted where, corporations now uh, take on a conscience or um, 
they they craft uh, their own perceived morality, and they actually become advocates for um, ideologies and movements, and they even go forth trying to do humanitarian aid. And I have on the handout the five major humanitarian spinoffs of corporations, and you've probably heard of a few of them. The Ford Foundation, MasterCard Aid Network, Deloitte Humanitarian Innovation Corporation, Logistics Emergency Teams, Agility, UPS, Amerisk, and then the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, from Microsoft. And this is a reaction in many ways to a desire and a way to fulfill needs and empty spaces in people's lives. And this is their way of trying to do it. And not saying it's bad, in fact, you know, humanitarian aid is is quite good, actually. But what's interesting is the secular world is moving forward. And this is what I think is remarkable. The secular world is moving forward in so many ways and behaving like church minus God, m- minus mystery, minus holiness. And in, in so many of these cases, people will say, or corporations or groups would say, they can do more without the church. And so they're going it alone without God. And, and I think in some ways, in some cases, it's purposeful. And we see it even with individuals. And perhaps you have yourself have done this. People volunteer to feed the poor, assist in elections, uh, be a big brother or big sister uh, to help young people that, that don't have a father or a mother or, sis, or siblings. And what you see in all of this is the secular world, even though they may refuse a God or deny a transcendent God, they still see a need to bring love, help, and improvement into the lives of others. And this is where protreptics, for example, so back to Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria would see something like this, not in a negative way at all. In fact, he would say, you know, I see bits and pieces of the scriptures in what these people are doing. You know, they're trying to do good. They're trying to love their neighbor. Um, They're trying to make the world a better place. But, and then to go with, uh, with Clement, he would often say like of Plato's philosophies or Aristotle or Pythagoras, he would say that the grains of goodness and truth, which they uh, bring forth in their philosophies have simply been divorced from the God of the scriptures. And he uses an example. So um, this is in the Greek New Testament. And if you have a Bible, you can take a look at it, or you can you can just jot it down and look at it later. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 makes a remark. Um, talking about uh, these you, these things you know that in the last days in the last times there will be uh, men will be lovers of themselves so this is this is second timothy 3 verses 1 and 2 so in the last days uh, people will be lovers of themselves and the greek word is philautoi and what that greek word actually means is Um, So lover of self is usually how it's translated. But what Clement says this really means is they to love yourself is to rob God of the things that belong properly to God. So this Greek word philautoi, Clement says, is robbery. Um, He translates it as as robbery. And. So then let's see here very quickly. Could one call it the desire for self-justification? Yeah, 
I think that there's a part of that, that part of the, you know, the justification comes from the savior and um, without God, everything then turns back to the self. And so in terms of humanitarian aid and, and the secular world going forth, by going forth without God, the perspective is, is a little different. And I'll get to that a little bit more uh, at the end. So for the church, it is helpful and in fact needful for us to understand just what the church has that the secular needs. So what do we have? Well, we have truth, we have beauty, we have mystery, and we have identity. And of course, there's probably more, but these are kind of four categories that I think of in this regard. And these four characteristics of the church are intertwined, truth, beauty, mystery, and identity. And so truth is defined by the cross of Jesus provides a proper definition then for love and mercy. So love and mercy are defined differently if the gaze is, is towards Jesus and towards the cross. Beauty takes on a particular character. It establishes and gives character um, and provides identity to people. And so mystery characterizes truth, beauty, and identity. And beauty is characterized by a certain godly order. And mystery lives in the ordering of God and humanity. So our modern world tends to look at things empirically. Holy imagination, sacred mystery, and realities unseen tend to be ignored or refuted. And so if you think about mystery and holy mystery, how do we as people tend to process it? Well, we often, as Christians, when we're talking to people outside the church or having a relationship, a friendship with someone, if they ask us questions, we want to answer all their questions. And, and I mean, I find myself this way too. Like somebody will ask me a question and they're always zingers, right? Or they're always, they're often very difficult questions and you try so hard to answer the question just right so that they can walk away and say, man, that was awesome. That was, all right, I'm a believer now. That's, that's all I needed, right? I mean, that's, we always hope that we could do that or provide that kind of answer. But so often, um, there's a lot of mystery that's swirling about when we talk about the deep things of God. And it's okay. And so as, as, your pastor, I'm telling you, it is okay if you don't have all the answers. You know, if you if you can give an answer, but they still have a little question, um, don't feel badly about that. You know, don't feel like you couldn't do it or, you know, you didn't do it very well or, you know, you should have answered differently. Um, but what I often do is I answer as best I can, especially if it's a very difficult question. And then I pray, you know, later on, I will pray about the time I spent with the person and I'll pray for the person. And I put it in the Lord's hands and ask him to make right my words, my witness, and that the person will receive it well and that the Lord will do his work. Uh, through the Holy Spirit to uh, bring good and bring change into the person's life. And because, you know, think about, you know, we always talk about mercy at St. John's and that mercy is also for you as you talk to people. Um, so it's okay if we, if we still have questions, it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, the same thing then too, when we look at the people outside of the church, the secular world, they often want to know the answers to everything as well. And, and I've, I've had people say to me, well, you know, um, 
if you can't answer all my questions, there's no way I can believe. But if you can answer all my questions, then then I could maybe believe in God. And that too, from the secular standpoint, is eradicating mystery. And so think about mystery. Because of because we're human beings and because we like to know things and to answer questions and have evidence, we like as much as we can to erase mystery or to dispel it. But think about this. Think about the Garden of Eden. So back in the Garden of Eden, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story, right? The Lord says, eat from the tree of life all day long. Enjoy it. But see that tree over there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat from that tree for the day that you eat of it, it's the day you die. And of course, as we know, the serpent slithers in and he entices Eve and then Adam and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you look at that carefully, and you don't have to go to this, but I'm going to take a quick look at it here in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now notice she adds something there, neither shall you touch it. But that's not exactly what God said. And then the serpent says this. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you'll be like God. Well, Adam and Eve are sitting there thinking, that sounds great. I want to be like God. And, you know, if I know good and evil, maybe that can help me, right? But if you think about this in terms of mystery, God left the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Martin Luther says it wasn't just one tree, but it was likely a whole grove. And I have an interesting quote in the handout from Luther about this. But what he says that the, the grove of the trees of knowledge of good and evil would have been for Adam and Eve and their descendants, the church, where they would go to worship. Because those trees represented mystery. Those trees symbolized the difference between God and people. And God designed it to be that way, and it was good. So God put mystery right in the midst, but Adam and Eve wanted the mystery gone. So that's something to keep in mind as we think about church, holiness, mercy, heaven and earth converging, divine service, our life of holiness, even as we live uh, forgiven and, and yet still battling sin and the world and our flesh and all of that. And so that leads me then to Second Kings chapter 5, where we take a look at uh, a good example of holy mystery. So Second Kings 5, and it's verses 1 through 19. And it's a great it's a great account. It's a great story. Perhaps you know it. Perhaps you know it well. Um, interestingly, I, and this was not planned, by the way, um, but uh, Pastor Nelson was doing Methasis yesterday. And guess what his, his biblical topic was? But Naaman. And, and I told him, I said, that's what I'm doing tomorrow night. And that's just, I guess, we're thinking the same, you know, we're trekking, you know, tracking. So, um, at any rate, so here it is, right? So you have this amazing, powerful commander, Naaman uh, of Syria, top commander of Syria. And he's very close to the king. And you can just imagine what he would have gone through to get into a position like that. You know, to, to, to be the top military commander of a very powerful worldly army 
he would have had to prove himself. He would have had to spend a lot of time on the battlefield and out in the fields. And, you know, if you think about this guy, just picture him in your head what, what this guy probably looked like. Um, he was probably pretty buff. Um, he probably had some leathery skin because he spent a lot of time out in the fields, battlefields and in the tent, in tents. Uh, he probably had a lot of scars from battle wounds that he survived. And so he was probably a pretty intimidating character. So intimidating, powerful, well-respected. And this is, this is Naaman. So in terms of the world, he was very successful. He was very respected. And this is really what people desire to achieve all their lives. They want to be acknowledged, respected. They want their work to count for something. And they would like accolades. But then it says in verse one, but he was a leper. And a leper was a problem on many fronts. Uh, for one, people would kind of look at him and go, ooh, right? Um, but then he was also hindered uh, from, from some things socially, probably because of it. Um, it could also be dangerous <clears throat> because it could kill him. And that would be a problem for the king also. And so the story then, as it unfolds, is there's a, a servant girl from Israel who had been captured on a raid. And she stands before the noble wife of Naaman and says, hey, if only you all knew about the prophet, the prophet back home, your husband could be healed. And there's, there's a theme running throughout this, this text. And the theme is one of reversal. Several times a servant or servants stand before noble people and, and give them advice or teaching. And in this case, leading them to do God's word. So the servant girl stands before the noble wife of Naaman. And this is a great quote, by the way, on the handout. St. Ambrose said, we said that baptism was prefigured in the Jordan when Naaman the leper was cleansed. Who is that captive maid, but one who had the likeness of the church and exhibited a figure of it? I love that. She represents the church. She has the likeness of the church. So then what happens is it goes back to the king. The king sends a letter to the king of Israel. And they're going to work it out between them. But that's not really how it works. And so the king back home so the king of israel gets upset and tears his robe in mourning because he feels like the, the king of syria is just going to come after him he's just looking for an excuse well the king of israel has forgotten about the prophet elisha which that in of itself spells trouble but the king can't fix it but the prophet can and so Naaman grabs his entourage, his provisions, and he goes riding like he's gonna, going to go see a king and present to a king. And so put yourself for a moment in Elisha's situation. Here is this very powerful, noble, respected army commander coming to knock on your door. I mean, be kind of like the top military commander of the United States coming to your door to seek help from you. How would you come to the door? You would probably try to have everything ready, maybe have a meal, be presentable, be respectful, and come to the, you would come to your own door to open it with honor, right? But Elisha, and here's the servant thing coming again, 
he sends his servant to the door. So Naaman comes, knocks on the door. The servant goes to the door and answers it. And the servant simply says, you know, the prophet says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be healed. And Naaman goes away in a rage. And this is so often the way the way it is. Naaman, the, in Hebrew, so if you're looking at verse 11, in Hebrew, word order is different in in Greek and Hebrew than it is English, which may, if I get a chance, I don't know if I will, hopefully I will, I'll get to Second Peter 1 and, and show you an example of this. But the first words in the Hebrew text of verse 11 are to me, to me. So what this spells out for us, for the reader, is that Naaman is very ego-centered. He, he's thinking about, hey, this is me that, that they're dealing with. And I'm not just any old me, but I'm Naaman, the top commander of the Syrian army. And so what happens is he goes away furious. And so at any rate, what we see here is he's, he wants a show. He wants the miraculous. He wants, he thought that Elisha was going to come out and wave his hand over the, the sores and, you know, maybe make a flash or maybe a peal of thunder or lightning or, you know, a little blast or something to make it good. And then, boom, it's done. But to go wash in the Jordan seven times is ridiculous to Naaman. And so here's something maybe to consider with this. Naaman, even with the miraculous, he wants to define it. Now, just think about that for a second. He wants miraculous, but he wants to define it and govern it. And he doesn't want mystery. Because mystery always is a bit of a question mark, right? And so then he looks at the Jordan River and he says, that's a muddy, muddy river. Why would I go in that thing? To me, it's nothing. I have all these great rivers back where I come from. I live in a beautiful country. I'm supposed to go in this? But see, think about the Jordan River and its history among the people of Israel the Jordan River in the Old Testament was the river that was parted and the people of Israel crossed to go into the promised land. So it had holy history to it. And even though it looked like a muddy river, it was full of holy mystery. And then you add the command of God, right? So the prophet's words is the command of God with gift to do it, to affect it. And yet it leaves, as he comes out of that water and he's healed, it's still mysterious. And then you have one more time, the servants coming up to Naaman and saying, hey, if he would have told you to do something great, you would have done it, right? So if the prophet says, just go wash in the Jordan seven times, well, maybe, it, maybe it'll work. Maybe there's a reason. And so Naaman, so there's another example of where this reversal, where the servants come and they are encouraging the nobleman to, to listen to God's word. So there he is, goes in and out of the Jordan River seven times. And wouldn't you think that was funny? If somebody said, hey, just seven times, just go ahead and do it. Let's see what happens. You'd be like, what? Are they trying to make me look like a fool seven times? I mean, come on, they're just going to laugh at me, right? But he does in and out seven times, which is more mystery, right? And we know the number seven. You know, God created the world in six days, but he rested on the seventh, right? 
And then we go back, we, then we go way forward into the book of Hebrews and Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So seven is rest. So Naaman is going to go plunging into the Jordan River and he's going to be healed. And if you know this story well, you already know what's going to happen. But if you haven't paid much attention to this, it's great because how does, when Naaman comes out of the water, he's healed of his leprosy, but it says something more. He has the flesh of a little child. It's like he's, he's new. He is reborn. And so, you know, when you think about the church's kerygma then, now this is not the baptism which we know about or the Christian baptism at the baptismal font in St. John's, but it is kerygma and it is a type of baptism. It's pointing us forward to baptism and, and we see it and it's, very reminiscent of John 3, 3, which you can, you probably know, but you can take a look at it too when you get a chance later. And so then Naaman sees that he's healed, but, you know, all the scars, all the battle scars, the leathery skin, if he had leathery skin, you know, the weathered, the weathered skin, the age, all that was gone. He's new. And then he goes back to Elisha's house, and now Elisha comes to the door. And then we see Naaman wants to give him gifts, and Elisha's like, hey, no, no, this is the gift of God, and I'm God's servant, so please, I'm just, this is what I do. And so then Naaman He asks a very interesting request in verse 17. He wants two mule loads of earth so that he can take it back to his home country. And here's, here's exactly what he says. So let's just look at this for a second. He says in verse 17, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. So I have I've I look around and always try to figure out like if there's any good commentary on on what this means, and there's not a lot of commentary uh, on this. But what I gather from this is that he's going back to his home country, which is a pagan country um, where they, they worship other gods, uh, the God of Rimon. And he now wants to, and this is the way I sort of interpret it. If you carry it, the whole account forward and you look at how it all is unfolding, it is though he wants to worship on the soil that Elisha worships on because now he is a child of God, Naaman. So he is connected to Elisha and all those people that worship the Lord, Yahweh, the, the true Lord, the true God. And he wants to worship on the same soil when he prays. And then something else happens in verse 18 that is worth commenting on. And I think this is very important, especially when we talk to the secular, when we talk to the art of witness, when we're talking to people out in the world. He says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So what he's he knows he's going back to a complicated situation. He's going back to his world and he is now different and it gets more complicated now. And so 
what he's asking is, Lord, have mercy on me because I've, I've now got to go back and I've got to go into the, the temple of Rimon and, and I have to, you know, as, as the king leans on me, then I, I'm sort of complicit in this whole thing. And he says, but my heart is, is with, with Yahweh, with the Lord. And so he's asking for absolution. And, you know, this is very important in, in our world today, just to think about, because the world is very complicated. And the secular world, the world around us, as it becomes less Christian, it's, it's more difficult. And so there has to be a lot of mercy and instruction. And this is why we pastors at St. John, when people come in from outside and they are tiptoeing into the church and um, they hear the gospel and they want the gospel to be for them and they need the absolution, but then they look back outside and they see their lives and the complexities of their lives and they realize this is not easy. And so like the three of us pastors, we always say, you know, if you will allow us to be your pastor and this is your church and, you know, we can teach you and, you know, care for your soul, then that's a good place to be because what that is doing is allowing us to journey. And that this goes back to, uh, the first week when I talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and, you know, gluing yourself to the chariot like Philip does and riding with the Ethiopian. And there is a con- part of part of this relationship is to walk with people and to instruct and love, teach and to grow and you know, to live in this holy mystery in confession and absolution. And it's, this is what you see in this text. And so it's, it's very powerful. And so when you think about the art of witness, here is something that, that is often on my mind is, and this is down at the bottom of page four of the handout, every human interaction is based on the principal agent, the instrument, or the interaction, and the recipient. Now, for the secular, because God does not factor in in their lives and their relationships, the principal agent is one person, and then the recipient is another person. And in a world without God, the interactions between agent and recipient are defined by then those two people's definition of justice or love, honor, whatever the case may be. For Christians, the principal agent is first God. So we have the the vertical dimension is first God and then the instrument. And the instrument is the whole, is the, holy mystery, you know, the word and the sacraments, life around the altar, the church is the recipient. And our interactions between God, God and people with the holy mystery, the sacramental life, that changes the way we interact with other people out in the world. Our definitions are different based on the cross of Christ, the kerygma of Christ. And so I think that's helpful in the art of witness if we understand. And and because in the secular world, if you only have the horizontal dimension, so you have the principal agent and the recipient, and then all the interaction that takes place in between, they are always caught with one another's definitions. And those definitions can change from person to person or situation to situation. And so the secular minded are always uneasy. There's just something missing. 
And when we reconnect God to relationships, it provides a foundation, but it also, a foundation provides stability, but it also can then provide peace, understanding, and hope and contentment. Okay. So that I see I am just about out of time. So let's take a quick look at the the other the other file that I put put up in the chat, Second Peter one. Go ahead and pull it up if you can. It's a PDF file. And this is a great example of how the Greek, and you don't have to look, you don't have to open your Bible for this because unless you, unless you can't access this PDF, um, I have the English and the Greek and second Peter one is beautiful because it heightens holy mystery and the divine working of God. And, and let me just show you this. So in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 11, it starts off by saying, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Okay. Now, excellence is like virtue, but notice that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so in Greek, life is zoe, which is the spiritual life. It's the higher life. It's the true life. And then godliness is eusabion, which literally, like if you parse that word out, it means good worship. You know, sebomai is to worship. And then the prefix you is good. So this godliness isn't just uh, an empty ideology, but it's actually true worship. And then knowledge is divine knowledge through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire now if you can access this pdf look at the english partakers is in red and underlined and then divine nature is red and in bold okay now if you look down at the greek and this is a perfect example of word order that you can switch word order up in Greek. So if you look at the, the Greek, there's the red bold, and then there's the red and underlined, okay? So the red and the underlined word means partakers, but the red bold is divine nature. Now notice what Peter does here, that you may be partakers of the divine nature, so partakers is the word for fellowship, koinonia. You've probably heard that word before, being members of St. John. And then that word is often connected to our fellowship around the Lord's table. But then divine nature is separated. So the first word in Greek, thios, is divine and then the second word that's read in bold is phiseos. And what Peter did here is he separated the words divine nature and put partakers in between it. And so he's giving you with the words a picture of our life with Christ. The, the, partake, the partakers or the fellowship is in between the divine nature. And so you get this, he's giving you a picture of the church is encircled and enwrapped by the divine nature of God. And it is this divine nature of God, which provides everything for us. And so if you read on, he says in verse five, 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what all of this is doing, what Peter is saying is glory and virtue finds its source in Christ himself. And he establishes all things. And then we, through our fellowship, participate in this divine nature. And then these things come to define us. And so what's going on in this text, and if you look at it in terms of our study tonight and the art of witness, how we differ from the world outside, the secular world, is that we have been, through the grace of Christ, filled up with all of these good and holy gifts. As he forgives, he loves and shapes and changes. And so we have a peace that surpasses all understanding and the world outside is making their best go at it, but they, they're still yearning, maybe quietly, maybe angrily, maybe passionately for something they do not have. And it's what we have. The beautiful, holy, wonderful gifts of our Lord and Savior. So I see I've run over in time, but it's good to spend time with all of you tonight. I, I appreciate you coming and, and, and hanging out with me. And let us then close with the Lord's Prayer. And I'll stick around if you have any, any questions or, or comments. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Peace be with all of you.